Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. An insurance company reported some of those descriptions that people had sent in describing their accidents on insurance claim forms. Listen to some of these. The pedestrian had no idea which way to run, so I ran him over. Or this one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. One person wrote, The pedestrian ran for the pavement, but I got him. Another, When I saw I could not avoid a collision, I stepped on the gas and crashed into the other car. I like this one. In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. And just a few more, The car in front hit the pedestrian, but he got up, so I hit him again. Now, this one scares me. I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight. Or the final one, the person filing the claim had collided with a cow. The questions and answers on the claim form were, question, what warning was given by you? Answer, a horn. Question, what warning was given by the other party? Answer, a moo. (laughs) Communication is expressing how we feel, what we think but it can be difficult to always communicate in a way that honors the Lord. We're going to finish up our text in James 3, where we have been looking at the power of the tongue and some of the strongest words that have ever been stated about the power and the danger of the tongue are found right before us. The tongue is a fire, verse 6, set on fire by hell. Now, let's take a look at how to tame the tongue, James 3, and we start with verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. At 29 minutes past 5 a.m. on July 16th of 1945, something spectacular happened. 
in northern New Mexico, the dark early morning sky became as bright as the noonday sun. In that one blinding flash, the atomic age had begun. The atomic fireball shot upwards at 360 feet per second. First, pulsating orange, then bright red, then dark red, and then black and rolling. The mushroom cloud formed at 30,000 feet, and all that remained on the ground at the blast site were chunks of green radioactive glass that had been created by the incredible heat of the explosion. Awesome, unbelievable, destructive power was unleashed on that day. Just 21 days later, that horrible, destructive power was brought to bear on our enemy. As one of our B-29 bombers dropped an atomic bomb named Little Boy on Hiroshima, Japan. As he looked down at the explosion, Robert Lewis, the co-pilot of the Enola Gay, said the words, What have we done? On December 20th, 1951, something else spectacular happened. In Arco, Idaho, the dark sky was brightened with light as well. Not nearly as bright as the New Mexico sky was six years before, but the sky lit up. It was brightened by light bulbs which were powered by the first electricity made from nuclear energy. Electricity that powers homes, businesses, schools, hospitals, and churches. The uranium that is used in the nuclear reactor is the same uranium that is used in the atomic bomb. The same science that is used in the reactor is used in the bomb. The same atoms and electrons, the reactions and physics of it all are used in each. So what is the difference? The difference is how this awesome power is used. When used one way, atomic energy produces tremendous good, but when used another way, it produces the most destruction man has seen. And this, this is the illustration that James wants us to understand that the tongue, it has the power to destroy. The tongue has the power to cause great damage. But that same tongue has the power to do tremendous good. Take another look at verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Great pride was taken in the first century in mankind's ability to tame and control the animal kingdom. The wild beasts, the birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea. All types of animals have been brought under control by man. This is nothing new. This is part of God's purpose for man, seen all the way back in the book of Genesis. People have taught lions, tigers, and monkeys to jump through hoops. They have taught parrots and canaries to speak and sing. Dolphins and whales are taught to perform tricks. Now, if you have a cat, you may not understand this concept. But if you have a dog, you know that animals can be trained. You know, mankind can bring the animals under control, but no man can tame the tongue. Even the greatest of God's servants struggled with this. Consider Moses, a powerful servant of God. He walked with God, he talked with God, and yet he was not allowed to enter into the promised land, in part because of the words he spoke. Psalm 106 says that he spoke rashly with his lips. Moses lost his patience. And the words he spoke, coupled with dishonoring God by not trusting him, it kept Moses out of the promised land. Back in verse 2, we looked at the truth that the tongue can be brought into submission by the work of the Spirit of God. 
But because of the fall of man, man has lost control of the tongue. No man can tame the tongue on their own. But what is completely hopeless for fallen man, what cannot be accomplished by the fallen man, can be done by the work of God's power and his grace. Sinless perfection isn't going to happen this side of heaven. But the overall pattern can be that the tongue is brought under control by the work of the Spirit. The tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. The tongue cannot be trusted. It is an unruly evil. It constantly wants to break out with words that destroy. With the words an unruly evil, the picture that's given here in our passage is of a wild animal that cannot be controlled. It cannot be restrained. And with the words full of deadly poison, the wording means death-bearing, making the picture the poison of a serpent's tongue. Like the poison of a serpent, the tongue is loaded with the venom of hate and death. I was reading about a church in West India that was gathered together when they noticed a cobra moving through the meeting. Someone grabbed a hoe and cut its head off. And after the meeting, the people gathered around looking at this dead cobra. Well, one young man, he stomped on the head of the dead cobra and he immediately screamed out. And within an hour, he was dead because the fangs of the cobra still had poison in them. Able to kill, long after life had gone out of the snake, the deadly poison was still there. And this, this is how it is with the tongue. Long after we leave the scene, the poison from our lips can still have deadly consequences. Verses 9 and 10 in your text. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be so. Notice with these first statements, speaking of the tongue, James uses the word we two different times. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men. James understood that believers in Christ can be guilty of such hypocrisy. And the best use of the tongue is to praise our God and Father. But one of the worst is to use the tongue to curse our fellow man. Again, the tongue, it just speaks what is in the heart of man. To curse men, this is based in pride. It is to think that you are better than your fellow man. The wording used does not really refer to someone just using profanity or someone speaking vulgar language, but the meaning here is of someone losing their temper, someone upset with another person. This is a moment of passion. The context is within the church. There's anger represented here, slander, men losing control. Remember, to the Jews, the idea of cursing someone meant to call on God to cut a person off from any possible blessing. It was often used by the Jews to ask God to actually send a person to hell. Cursing men who have been made in the similitude of God. In other words, cursing our fellow man who has been made in the image of God. Animals don't have the ability to reason. They're not conscious like man. They don't have the capability of knowing and serving God. But to curse a man made in the image of God is to insult God himself. To dishonor someone else is a sin against the Creator. And the proper response should always be respect, even when someone pushes our buttons. Notice the inconsistency for all of us. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. 
This goes back to the teaching of Christ, that it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. The words that come out of such a double-minded man demonstrate that something is wrong deep within the heart. Over the years, there is no doubt that James had witnessed this type of spirit amongst the Pharisees who paraded around as pious leaders to the people, but then at the same time, the Pharisees looked down on the people. James testifies, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. This is a strong rebuke to their situation, a rebuke offered up with love for the brethren. James was grieved that this type of inconsistent faith was going on amongst the brethren. Praising God and cursing members of God's family goes against everything that the family of God should stand for. This is something that should not be among brothers and sisters in Christ. Our speech, it should. It really should reflect purity in Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine? Bear figs. Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. What is James doing? He is once again turning to illustrations from nature to drive home how wrong it is for believers to be inconsistent with the use of the tongue. The obvious answer in each case here is no. There is no doubt that a fig tree cannot bear olives. There is no doubt that a grapevine cannot bear figs. These Jewish believers knew firsthand that the land of Judea can be parched, desperate for water. The villages of Judea depend on the fresh springs of water for their very survival. The water had to be fresh. The water had to be clean. But what would happen? If a man or a woman living in a village in that day went to a spring where the water was always clear, where the water was always fresh, and then one day the spring was filled with water that was bitter, water that could not be used for drinking, but it was coming out of the same place where the fresh water had always come. It was pretty much impossible. No spring of water would do this. And in the same manner, no orchard is so inconsistent. No vineyard is so inconsistent. It is simply impossible for a fig tree to start growing olives or for a vine to start growing figs. In the land of Judea, the fig, the olives, and the grapevine, these were three of the major crops that they would grow. James was again pulling an illustration from something that was common to the people. And just as a fig tree cannot produce olives, just as a grapevine cannot produce figs, the heart living in submission to Christ and to the Spirit of God, it should not produce harmful speech, especially towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is inconceivable to think of a mouth giving praise to God one moment and then the next spilling out curses against men. But that is what we do when we are out of fellowship with God. You can be driving down the road praising God until someone pulls out in front of you, and just then your speech may not match your identity in Christ. Ever been there? James turns again at the end of verse 12 to the spring of water. And we're not that used to the idea of springs of water that are salty. But you got to remember, you got to keep in mind that in the land surrounding the Dead Sea, this was pretty common to have springs with salt water in them. But at least with a spring, the water's either fresh or salt water. At least it's not inconsistent like the tongue that curses the brethren while at other times giving praise to God. You see, James is trying to get the church to take a look 
at what the tongue reveals about the heart. Then notice verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. A lot of people don't see the connection with verse 13 and on with what we've looked at in the first part of chapter 3. But the point is, James is building off the discussion of the tongue and teaching that there are two kinds of wisdom. Just as the words that come out of the tongue indicate the heart of the man, there are two types of wisdom, wisdom that is from above and wisdom that is demonic. The type of wisdom you embrace, it speaks volumes about your faith and will show up in how you speak. James starts the discussion. Who is wise and understanding among you? Strong words, words that challenge the pride of men, words that challenge the heart of men. To be wise, according to the Jews, this was someone with a personal knowledge of God. This knowledge of God meant wisdom, wisdom in how to live. To have understanding was someone that had the knowledge of an expert. And so James was putting this all together, referring to someone that had the wisdom of God, referring to someone who understood the things of God. This person, James says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Do you see how this builds off of chapter 2? James 2 taught us that being justified before God is by faith. Being justified before men is by works. Works do not validate our faith. They are not a test of salvation, but works should be there in the life of a believer. Here, James picks it up and says, wisdom that is from above, wisdom that comes from the Lord is demonstrated by works. Let him show, James testifies, let him demonstrate it. Meaning this, if you want to prove that you have wisdom that comes from God, don't try to prove it with words. Prove it with your life. Prove it with your works. Here's where I think James is going with this. Wisdom from God, wisdom from above. The world does not have this. Wisdom from above is God's truth to guide us day by day. Knowing his truth, it guides our lives no matter what we face, no matter what decisions we must make. Day by day, believers are forced to make choices, sometimes hard decisions, and the steps that you take, they will determine the course of your life. But we know the author of the book. We know his truth. And so, the good conduct of life, it will demonstrate that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is the exact opposite of arrogance. There's plenty of arrogance in the church today, very little meekness. It is the attitude of the heart that produces gentleness and care in dealing with others. Don't confuse meekness with weakness. Meekness conveys the idea of power and strength, but power under control. The man that is meek doesn't feel the need for the praise of men. He doesn't feel a need to contend for his own rights or the need to get his own way. This is a person known for modesty, humility. Verse 14 records the contrast. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. King Saul was destroyed because of his bitter envy toward God. I am reminded of Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And we read the words of Job 5.2, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Carl Erickson found this out. 
As a 73-year-old man, he was sentenced to life in prison after admitting to the murder of a former high school classmate. Friends and family were shocked that he snapped, but after the murder, the secret finally came out. For over 55 years, he had simmered with a grudge. He had harbored bitter envy towards a classmate who had pulled a high school locker prank back when he was a teenager. Norman Johnson, the victim, was a star athlete on the track team, and the prank, it planted seeds of resentment that grew for over 55 years. Then one day, Carl Erickson rang Johnson's doorbell and shot him dead. In 1930, the Chicago Examiner ran a strange story about a man named Harry Havens who went to bed and stayed there for seven years with a blindfold over his eyes because he was angry with his wife. He used to like to help around the house, and one day his wife scolded him for the way he did dishes. He got so angry, he said, all right, if that is the way you feel, I'm going to bed. I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life, and I don't want to see you ever again. He stayed in bed with a blindfold over his eyes for seven years. The LA Times once printed a story about a man like this. This 55-year-old man and his wife were fighting with another driver over a parking space, which is really, if you think about it, just an argument about who is first. A humble man doesn't have this argument. The other driver did not strike a blow. But the 55-year-old man punched the driver twice. His wife told him to calm down, and he turned, and then he punched her, his own wife, two times. Then he walked 10 steps, and he dropped dead. Proverbs 14 says, A quick-tempered man does foolish things. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension. Bitterness and anger is a deadly poison that destroys lives and dishonors God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, when bitterness is allowed to breed, it hurts those around you while you destroy yourself in the process. It hurts you more than anyone else. It's like swallowing a bottle of poison and then waiting for the other person to die. If you have bitter envy in verse 14, or better, if you harbor bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, this is someone holding on to that bitterness, holding on to that self-seeking spirit. This person is not just bitter, they have both bitterness and envy in their heart. Remember the problem back in verse 1, too many of them wanted to be teachers. That's the driving context. These men were looking to advance in the church. They wanted the attention of men. They wanted the spotlight on them. To have bitterness, to have envy towards one another, and then attempt to teach, it was pure hypocrisy. It would be a lie to try to teach others with envy in the heart, with a selfish ambition to get ahead of others. This isn't serving God. This is serving self when it becomes about the man and not the message. This is sin. There is an incredibly strong warning here for those who would dare to use the teaching of the Word of God as an instrument to satisfy their own pride. This person is putting themselves above the truth of God's Word. This person is putting themselves above the needs of the church. He arrogantly tramples down the truth as a means to an end. 
Instead of using God's truth to minister to others, he lies against the truth because this person is pretending, this person is acting as if they live out the truth of God's word. But instead, their actions, their teaching is motivated by bitterness and envy. This is of the heart. No one wears a sign that says, I'm a jealous person. These are the hidden sins of the heart that should not be in the life of those who teach. It shouldn't be a competition in any church. It should be about being a servant of Christ. And look at the verdict in verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. This wisdom, meaning this is the wisdom of the person from verse 14. Wisdom without meekness. Wisdom with selfish ambition and bitter conflict. At best, it is misguided, and at its worst, it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It's not of God. It doesn't descend from above. It's of the natural man, sensual, the type of wisdom that promotes self over the people of God. This is the type of wisdom that could come straight from the pits of hell. Demonic wisdom seeks to corrupt the fellowship of the body of Christ. Now here comes the telltale sign of what this looks like in the body of Christ. Verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Anytime you have envy, anytime you have self-seeking in the church, there will be two consequences. James says there will be confusion and every evil thing. Let's say it like this. Jealousy and pride lead to disaster. It leads to division. Sinful hearts lead to sinful actions in the body of Christ. And then confusion reigns. Instead of creating a close fellowship among the body of believers, pride and jealousy rip it apart. Nothing about this honors Christ. Because these people are not looking to honor Christ or one another. They're looking to honor themselves. But thankfully, chapter 3 doesn't end here. Our last two verses, starting in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see the contrast? This is God's wisdom from above that James touched on before. It is pure. It is undefiled. It is not entangled with jealousy or factions within the body of Christ. Purity is first because it is the most important item in this list. John wrote in 1 John 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The purity of Christ is the pattern for every follower of Jesus Christ. Second is peaceable. Being peaceable flows from the inner purity of this wisdom. It promotes right relationships between men and between man and God. Now, this does not mean we compromise our faith to maintain peace. A lot of people think that. God's wisdom does not pursue peace at the expense of purity. But even when fighting against sin, it hungers for peace. Gentle, being kind to others, then willing to yield. It is the opposite of being stubborn, willing to work with others, willing to give up your rights, full of mercy and good fruits. I think this stands in direct contrast to the every evil thing of verse 16. Mercy is more than just pity. Mercy is having compassion. Mercy is getting involved in helping. Mercy deals with the needs of others on the basis of what is needed, not on what is deserved. Mercy is one of the attributes of God. 
God prefers mercy over judgment any day, but Christians, they so often prefer judgment of others instead of showing mercy. Notice the wording. This type of wisdom is full of mercy, always ready to show mercy. The life of a person living in this wisdom will be full of good fruit. The acts of mercy that we show will produce fruit. Wisdom that is from above is without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom of God is impartial and without hypocrisy. God's wisdom does not divide the body of Christ. It does not sow discord within the body of Christ. This type of wisdom is not hypocritical. It is genuine and authentic. In the ancient Greek plays, an actor would place a large grinning mask in front of his face, and then he would quote his comedy lines while the audience would roar with laughter. Then he would slip off stage, grab a frowning sad mask, and quote his tragic lines as the audience moaned and wept. This is where we get the word hypocrite from literally a person of two faces. True wisdom is genuine. You see, it doesn't need to work under a mask since it has nothing to hide. It stands in remarkable contrast to the fake front that is put on today in many churches for an hour or two on Sundays. James is talking about authentic love for Christ and for his people wrapped in humility. Verse 18 It wraps up chapter 3. This is the result of the wisdom of God. This is what comes as a result of God's wisdom being the standard within the body of Christ. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. When the wisdom from above rules the hearts of the believers in the assembly, the fruit of righteousness, it continues to plant its seed and produces even more of a harvest. It is sown in peace by those who make peace. The idea is that righteousness cannot be planted where there is disruption within the assembly, within the church. Those who strive for peace within the assembly of believers seek wisdom that is from above, sowing the fruit of righteousness and making peace, making peace within the body of Christ. Back in March of 1805, Aaron Burr, the vice president of the United States, he delivered a farewell address to the Senate. After four years in office, he gave a farewell speech to conclude his service. Listen to the words of Burr. I shall, until I die, feel reverence for this house and the noble principles of which it is the primary guardian. In taking my leave of it and of you, I feel like the young man who leaves the dwelling of his parents to make his way into the world. This house is my mother and has nurtured me. This house is my father and has given me strength. They sure sound like the words of a man with honor, integrity, and a man that esteemed the good work that they were doing. After finishing his speech, Burr left the Senate chamber, receiving a standing ovation from his colleagues. His well-chosen words sounded like the speech of a great patriot. They prompted the Senate to an outburst of affection and support, but all was not as it seemed. When Burr reached the street after leaving the Senate chamber, he checked to see if bailiffs from either New York or New Jersey were waiting to arrest him. Not seeing any law officials in the streets, he left the Capitol on horseback, changed to another horse at the stable behind a small inn, and later transferred again to a coach with heavy, closed curtains. And then Burr disappeared from sight for two days. 
At the time when he was giving his speech in the Senate, Burr was wanted by officials in New York for murdering Alexander Hamilton, a former Secretary of Treasury. He killed Hamilton in a duel. Burr was also engaged in a plot to seize the Louisiana Territory and install himself as emperor over the territory. Here was a man who showed nothing but contempt for the laws of the Senate. He let his pride choose the path of his words. But you wouldn't know it from the fine words that he rose up to speak. And you see, that's the problem. The tongue can deceive. The tongue can be used to advance our own agenda. This is where it begins, distorting facts, presenting half-truths, rationalizing our own failures. James would have us use the tongue to produce a harvest of righteousness. James would have us cling to God's grace, controlling our words, and instead of being hypocrites, use our speech to encourage, to forgive, and to show mercy. God is looking for authentic faith before one another. Humble faith, faith that is rooted in love. Lofty words fill the churches today, but I'm afraid that so often our hearts are headed in the wrong direction. Nobody likes a hypocrite. No one wants to be around someone who puts their selfish ambitions ahead of the needs of the brethren. Deception has no place among the redeemed. Division, bitterness, envy, these things devastate the family of God and damage the work of Christ. But there's a higher road that James is calling us to, a road that is marked by gentleness, grace, forgiveness, and purity before Christ. It is a road marked by God's wisdom and the fruit of righteousness by those who make peace. That is the path I aim to walk in my life. Join me in that walk, depending on the grace of God and the Spirit of God to control not just the tongue, but our hearts, asking the Lord to develop true wisdom in us. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others, you help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.